to the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, chapter 14. We're studying the book of Revelation together on Sunday mornings. While we find our way there, just a reminder, Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we find ourselves this evening, having begun the gospel according to John, we'll look to finish chapter 1 uh, this evening. Each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. The Apostle John writes, and he says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sounds of the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were, were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault, before the throne of God. And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, <clears throat> excuse me, tongue, people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God." which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is the patience of the saints. And here are those who keep the commandments of God and uh, the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works uh, follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he crowd, cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are 
fully ripe. And so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. The winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Let's pray together. Fathers, we always do. We thank you this morning for the privilege of being able to turn to your word. We thank you that it washes. We thank you that it feeds. We thank you that it equips. And uh, thank you that it cleanses our lives. Lord, we've heard so many things this week. We've heard so many voices inside our heads, so many from without. And now we pray that you would give a power to your word that it might rise above all else and be the soul-conforming influence by your Holy Spirit within our lives, fashioning our thinking, fashioning our doing. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Chapter 14, the Holy Spirit concludes this lengthy parenthetical passage in the book of Revelation that constitutes chapters uh, 10 through uh, 14. And uh, he concludes it here with a revelation, further revelation concerning the 144,000, three proclamations by angels that Uh, are going to be uh, declared to the population of the earth during the tribulation period, and then two uh, two visions of the divine judgment that is going to fall upon the earth at the time of Jesus' second coming and at the time uh, of the battle of Armageddon. We remember that this section of Revelation, and talking here now about chapters 6 through 19, has to do with the entirety of the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And it's best understood as being a record of a sequence of events. Best to understand it sequentially as a record of the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and the, the bowl judgments. But between those series of three judgments, uh, God would take some time to just stop and fill us in on important details in these parenthetical passages so that we can understand what it is that he has just said and then what he understand what it is that he is about to say. And this passage of, of chapters 10 through 14 is all a preparation for what he's going to speak in chapters 15 to 21, which is going to conclude the book. So it's going to be necessary. These chapters now begin to move very, very quickly. And he's laying a foundation so we don't get lost in trying to understand it when, when we get to, uh, uh, get to those uh, chapters. And so because what's revealed in these parenthetical passage is uh, not intended to be exhaustive on any particular subject, it's tying up loose ends on things that have been, we've seen before. It is preparing us to understand what is coming next. And so the preparation never brings us to the conclusion. 
Uh, the conclusion is yet forward. And so that's why the, this, these chapters can seem a little bit choppy because it's like he takes us this far, but he doesn't take us all the way because he intends to do that in the future and he wouldn't be able to do it adequately without letting us uh, know uh, ahead of time. There's an old saying about preachers, and it really uh, uh, has to do with uh, any teacher of, of any kind. The old saying is that it's not enough uh, to, to teach so as to be understood. It's necessary to teach so, as, uh, so that you cannot be misunderstood. And Jesus uh, is like that. The Lord is like that. And he certainly is in the revelation. So he doesn't want us to misunderstand anything. And this book is mightily misunderstood by so many people. And so this is the methodology uh, that he uses. In verses uh, 1 through 5, he uh, the revelation returns to the subject of the 144,000. We see them now at the close of, of the tribulation period. We find him now in verse 1. Uh, uh, John saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And uh, the lamb refers to Jesus. Mount Zion is one of the several mountains that make up uh, the mountain ridges that, that surround Jerusalem. And then as we're introduced to the 144,000 once again, we were initially introduced to them in chapter 7, you might remember. And now they stand with Jesus on this Mount Zion in Jerusalem. From chapter 7, we remember that there are 144,000 Jews who will become Christians during the tribulation period, after the rapture uh, of the church. And they will be a segment of what are known as tribulation saints, the broad group of both Jews and Gentiles who will become Christians during the tribulation period. It appears that a very large number of Jews will be saved during the tribulation period. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They will trust in him for salvation. And among this large multitude uh, of Jewish people, God will choose uh, males from among uh, them, 12,000 out of each tribe, and they will constitute this 144,000. Uh, they will be sealed. Uh, that is, they will be uniquely protected uh, by God from uh, the plagues and from the uh, uh, devastating effects of the judgment that God is going to pour out on the earth during those seven years in order that he can, they can accomplish what he has called them uh, to do. And here in uh, chapter 14, verse 1, it indicates that this seal uh, is none, uh, none other than the name of God written on their foreheads. Now, here the Apostle John is looking uh, ahead to the day when the Jews, uh, when Jesus returns at his second coming, he touches down on the Mount of Olives, he then makes his way into the city of Jerusalem, and then he establishes his millennial or his thousand-year uh, reign on the earth. And, and so perhaps as John sees the 144,000 with Jesus at that time, uh, perhaps the 144,000 uh, will meet Jesus at, at, on Mount Zion at that time, and God will do it uh, supernaturally. 
Uh, God will just gather them. We're not entirely certain about where they minister exactly in the world. Are they going to be scattered throughout the entire world? Are they going to be clustered uh, for the most part in the Middle East or Israel? We don't know. So, but they're all going to be there. Not 139,000, not 143,000, the whole 144,000 that began the calling are going to end up in that place. And so God could call them if they're scattered around the earth, miraculously bring them to uh, that mount. Or it could just as easily be that the 144,000 in the course of the tribulation period, that they become students not only of the book of Revelation, but also of the book of Daniel. And then learning uh, most especially Daniel chapter 12 that declares that from the time that the Antichrist sets up the abomination that causes desolation in the middle of the tribulation period shall be 1,260 days. They will know the day of Jesus' second coming dated upon that abomination that causes desolation. And so perhaps knowing that then, they make their way to Jerusalem and to Mount Zion and uh, in order to be with him there. If I were a member of the 144,000, um, I would, I, I don't know what plane you'd want to take, uh, given the trouble that's going to be happening in the skies and all of that, but I would, I would make every effort I could to be there to witness his second coming and then to uh, uh, meet with him for then what unfolds afterwards following his, his second coming. Now, for those, uh, so that tells us a little bit about, you know, where, where they are as they resurface now in the account. The marks of their personal lives and their Christian witness is given to us uh, as well in uh, verses 4 and 5. The, the greatest factor for their uh, victorious Christian living during the tribulation period is going to be the fact that they are sealed by God. But God, the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that it wasn't just that, that they brought something to their Christian witness uh, as well that makes them distinctive uh, in, that, uh, in that period. And so uh, this is what they brought to their Christian life and to their ministry, and it's included for uh, our instruction and our encouragement. Uh, the, as we're told that in verse 4, uh, these were not defiled with women, for they are uh, virgins. And this speaks to the fact that they will be unmarried uh, in the tribulation period. They will maintain their sexual purity through that, throughout the tribulation period in the midst of what I assume is going to be a absolutely debauched sexual scene uh, under the influence of the devil during the, the, the tribulation uh, period. And yet they maintain a purity in it. So um, you, what we have to remember about the 144,000 is they're not angels. They're not a supernatural being. Uh, they're just people like you and me. And I think one of the reasons that, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us about the kind of Christian character that they end up exhibiting during the tribulation period, when I mean it is literally hell on earth, is that if they can do it during the tribulation period, 
then we can do it as well. And it is to be an exhortation to us, an encouragement to us, but also to uh, tribulation saints who are not a part of the 144,000 who will be reading the same book. And they will look and they will be encouraged that these men just like us are, are maintaining this standard in the middle of unbelievable wickedness. And so I'm going to make that, by the grace of God, my standard uh, as, uh, as well. And then <clears throat> they uh, follow the Lamb wherever He goes in verse 4. In other words, all He needs to do is lead, and they're going to follow Him and obey Him. They're redeemed from among men, verse 4, so they're Christians, and they're uh, thoroughly saved. They have no interest in being uh, what the world is all about, but the, but the kingdom of, of God. They are described in verse 4 as being the first fruits uh, to God and to the Lamb. In other words, they will be the, the first of many, many Jews who will become Christians during the tribulation uh, period. You notice in verse 5, in their mouth was found no deceit. And so you think about the level of deception that is going to be going on uh, in, uh, in the world during the tribulation period. It can be very hard to get the truth today. I mean, I, I like to listen to audio books and something about maybe contemporary issues or what, and you look and you say, I don't want an indoctrination. I, I just want somebody that knows what they're talking about on this subject and is level-headed to inform uh, me. But there's such an agenda attached with everything today and, uh, and so getting the truth is, is, is difficult. Imagine during the tribulation period when it's all going to be lies and deception. Uh, as Jesus said of Satan, and Satan will be ruling the world through the Antichrist, uh, that he's a liar and he's the father of lies. And yet in the middle of that environment of deception and lying and uh, almost uh, truth and truth-telling being non-existent, uh, they are going to, uh, uh, in their mouth, is not going to be found uh, any deceit. And surely a part of that truth is going to be to tell the truth about God. They'll be without fault, we're told, before the throne of God. It isn't that they'll be sinless, but they'll remain faithful to God when, uh, at this time when virtually the whole world uh, uh, isn't. The 144,000, we're told in verses 2 and 3, they sing a new song uh, to God. And so here's the context. Uh, while uh, John is on Mount Zion, because he presents himself as seeing it himself in this vision, he's witnessing Jesus and the 144,000 on the earth there on Mount Zion. And then the apostle John, he hears a voice from from heaven that sounds like the roar of a great waterfall and, uh, and, and a booming kind of clarity it has uh, of thunder. So this, just the, the awesome voices, the awesome sounds that are associated with, with heaven. And then John, in verse 2, he heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So, yes, there are harps in heaven. Uh, so if you're ever asked that, you're on jeopardy, and they say, is it true that there are, and uh, so, uh, so there are 
And when you listen to a harp, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful um, uh, instruments that a person can play. Uh, Whenever I've listened to a harp, it's only been one person playing it, and that's beautiful enough. Imagine having this massive number of harpists playing their harps, all of them in perfect uh, unison with one another, and just the beauty uh, that that is going to be. Now, in terms of uh, imagery related to the harp in the Bible, it is very, very strongly in the Bible uh, associated uh, with joy. And so the harpists were told in verse 3, they begin to sing a new song in heaven, and, and, uh, and that song that they begin to sing in heaven, <clears throat> only the 144,000 could join them. Only the 144,000 uh, could learn that song. Now that raises a, a couple of questions here. And it, number one, what is it that makes these harpists and these 144,000 uniquely qualified to sing this song? Why can't anybody else sing this, this uh, song? The passage makes it clear that they both share at least one thing in common. And what they share in common is redemption. Uh, both of them, both groups are uh, saved. They're Christians. But we know that the 24 elders uh, representing the pre-rapture church are redeemed. They're saved as well uh, and in heaven because of the song that they sing in chapter 5 that speaks of their redemption as well. So something more than redemption is required of a person to be able to sing this song. And the only thing that makes, uh, that, uh, the only something that makes sense to me and, and others as well is that both the harpists and the 144,000 are tribulation saints. That both of them have experienced the horrors of the great tribulation and, uh, but they've also experienced the grace of God on their lives to uh, successfully uh, navigate those whores. And so uh, the harpist in being faithful uh, to Jesus to the point of a martyr's death, which then delivered them into heaven, the 144,000 uh, receiving God's protection from death and fulfilling their unique call to stand with Jesus as this unique group at his second coming. And so this song appears to be a song of praise. The harps uh, indicate that, but a, a song of praise for uh, tribulation saints just thanking God for his faithfulness uh, to them, uh, thanking him for uh, the grace and the deliverance that he has uh, shown to them. It is interesting that this is the only place in the Revelation where a song is mentioned, but it's, then it is not quoted, uh, not quoted at least in part. There's no record here. God doesn't want any, he did not want a worship team somewhere taking that song and leading a congregation uh, in it. That song uh, belongs to, which would be a great temptation, uh, I, I'm sure, uh, it is, it is uh, uh, unique to this, uh, this particular 
group and can only be sung apparently uh, appropriately uh, by tribulation saints. I do think that it's, it's beautiful and also instructive to realize that God understanding what they will endure during the tribulation period. Yes, they should have been saved before the tribulation period uh, occurred. But this is the extent of God's grace, and we see his grace all the way through the tribulation period and all the way through uh, chapter 14 here. And, and to realize that God understands all that they were going to endure, what they end up uh, actually enduring after becoming Christians, after the rapture and, and during the tribulation, and he gives them a song. He gives them a special song uh, that they will be uniquely qualified to sing on the basis of what they experience from him, a song of praise. Uh, during uh, that period. And so they're all going to suffer in a way that's going to be unique to them in one sense, and, uh, and then uh, they'll remain faithful to God as they remain faithful to God all the way through. And I think about what an encouragement all of this will be to tribulation saints who will again be reading the book of Revelation for themselves and to realize once we get to the other side of this, God has a song prepared for us, uniquely prepared for us, a song of praise and thanksgiving uh, that he is going to allow us and us alone to, to sing. I, I, I would suspect that there might be a tendency um, especially uh, for, th for those that become Christians during the tribulation period, uh, especially for those that uh, become Christians after they've been raised in church all of their life and they really had no business ignoring God for that long and against that kind of knowledge and they end up in the tribulation period and it's like, okay, are we going to end up in heaven as second class citizens? Are we going to have a TS on our forehead, tribulation saints for e eternity? And it's, it's just one way in which God comes in and, uh, and, he, and he acknowledges the, the unique difficulty that they will encounter uh, as Christians during that period and, and, uh, and that all of the hardship that they will face will then one day re be replaced with a new song. Then comes in verses 6 through 13, there's these proclamations made during the tribulation period uh, by three uh, separate angels. In verses 6 and 7, the first angel is going to preach the everlasting gospel to every single human being in the world during the tribulation period. So sometimes, I mean, we all of us, I assume, uh, all of us have friends, we have family members, people that we love in life that are not yet Christians, and we think, well, if we get, when we get raptured out of here, who in the world is going to tell them uh, the truth about these things and how to be saved? And um, they're going to hear the gospel. And they're going to hear the gospel, if from no one else, and I'm sure they will from uh, many other sources, but they're going to hear it from this angel uh, that is going to uh, declare this everlasting gospel to the entire 
uh, world. And again, here as we studied in, in chapter 7, through <clears throat> all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all that's going on uh, during the tribulation period, God is going to continue to endeavor to save every single person uh, that is alive during the tribulation uh, period. And, and this is, again, this beautiful example of his, of his grace. He will not give up on a person uh, until they take themselves into, into death or they take the mark, as we'll see in a moment. But he, he, he continues, this lover of our souls, long before we ever knew the value of our souls, continues to draw people uh, to him. And so everybody is going to hear uh, that gospel. And they're going, to, they're going to understand what it means, uh, the necessity of putting their faith in Christ. They will understand how to do it. They will understand the consequences of failing to do that. It will be clearer than any evangelist who has ever lived, as wonderful as they are, uh, this will be a clearer presentation than anyone is, uh, has ever heard. Even at this point in the tribulation, it's not going to be too late uh, to be saved. And it's going to occur um, after uh, the seal and the tr uh, trumpet judgments have hopefully gotten people's attention to make them realize there is a God and you're not Him. The f uh, their hard hearts soften now to, uh, to now be willing to listen to the gospel when, and God's offer of salvation when they were unwilling to at another time uh, in, in their uh, life. And not only will every person hear the everlasting gospel, but they will hear that gospel delivered to them by means of an angel. That's, that's something. I don't know who led you to the Lord, but I'm not disappointed but this is really going to be something. To hear this gospel preached by an angel making his way through the heavens and covering the entire world and Satan and the Antichrist won't be able to do one single thing to stop him, to silence that voice and to silence that, uh, that gospel. And, and, uh, but God can't be the only one who cares for our souls. We have to care about our souls as well. And thankfully, again, we're told in chapter 7 of the Revelation that the number of people who will be saved, Jew and Gentile, during the tribulation period will be a multitude that cannot be numbered. It is going to be a huge harvest of souls. I've heard Bible teachers say, that uh, give their opinion, and it's an opinion, uh, that they're convinced that the single, that, that, that there will be more people saved during the tribulation period than, uh, uh, than the number of people who've been saved throughout church history. Now, I'm not smart enough to figure that out at all. I mean, I, my, my thoughts are, you know, am I going to have a, a banana with my oatmeal this morning for breakfast? So to figure out how many have been saved and how many. But you know, I don't dismiss it. Because when you talk about God who has quite a vocabulary saying the number can't be numbered, it's going to be awesome. And it's really, really going to be something. And all of it is going to be to the praise of the glory 
uh, of his grace. Now, when I was a new Christian, I heard over and over again uh, that one of the things that happened, had to happen before Jesus was going to return for the church and rapture the church was that we as Christians had to take the gospel into every nation and to uh, every person in the world. And so don't even look for his return until that's been accomplished. And usually it was like a missionary um, kind of a focus in terms of that being said in order to encourage people to become uh, foreign missionaries or to encourage them to support for foreign uh, missions, all of which is more commendable than you can put it into words. But this t- the, the teaching that that is, is based upon so often is a part of Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, where Jesus declares, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. That declaration by Jesus is in the context of the tribulation period. And, and the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this a declaration, prophecy of Jesus, is going to be by means of this angelic being that is going to deliver the gospel. Yes, the 144,000 will doubtless be sharing the gospel. People will be getting saved, and of course they're going to share uh, the gospel with other people when you're talking about these kind of uh, numbers. And then you're going to have Moses, uh, or you're going to have Elijah, perhaps Moses, as the two witnesses that are going to be sharing as well on television, evidently, because the whole world sees their death, and, uh, and people are going to know what their uh, message is. But the ultimate and complete fulfillment is going to occur as a result of the ministry uh, of this angel. And then there's going to be this, verse 7, we're told, the angel is going to also have this attached uh, message that's intended to cause people to take God's offer of salvation uh, seriously. Uh, They'll be warned to fear God and glorify Him because the hour of His judgment has come. They're to turn their worship to the Lord, the one who created all things, as opposed to their worship of the Antichrist, uh, the image uh, of the beast of the Antichrist or Satan, or, or worshiping these miracles or anything else. Now, you have a fair number of Bible teachers that they're not a majority, but they're significant in number. When they see this reference to the everlasting gospel here, and then with the accompanying message to that gospel, they conclude that what is being preached here by this angel isn't actually the gospel as we know it, but it's something less. It's good news. Uh, uh, but it's a message basically to uh, fear God, prepare for His, uh, his uh, coming judgment, and then turn their worship to Him in anticipation of Jesus' second coming. That is, just seems inconceivable to me, that God would go through all of that effort, tell people to fear God, judgment is coming, and make yourself ready for uh, the return of my Son, and then not give them the message that accomplishes that in their lives. That's not good news. And additionally, you could maybe hear that from this angel at this time in the tribulation period and die before the second coming. 
Now, it's inconceivable to me that God would go to these great lengths, uh, the lover of man's souls, as he shows himself throughout the revelation without delivering this uh, gospel, uh, the, the message of salvation, the invitation of salvation as well. Now, this, there's a second angel here in verse 8. And this angel is going to declare the fall of Babylon. And this angel is going to declare that fall to the entire world. Now, in the Old Testament and in human history, there was a Babylon, a literal kingdom of Babylon, and Babylon is spoken of in those terms in the Scriptures. But it is also used as a type or as a picture in the Scriptures uh, as, as representing kind of this timeless enemy of godliness, uh, godliness and that's how uh, it, it is used here. And so this is a warning to the world at that time that commercial and spiritual Babylon uh, representing the two principal means by which uh, the, uh, Satan keeps people from coming into contact with the gospel and then uh, taking the gospel seriously, uh, the, the commercial uh, Babylon and the spiritual Babylon. And commercial Babylon speaks of a worldwide commercial system that's marked by greed, it's marked by covetousness, it's marked by uh, uh, the worship of the creation uh, things rather than the creator who is, is uh, blessed evermore. And then spiritual Babylon, religious Babylon, speaks of a religious system that will exist in the world. People will want to have a spiritual side to their lives uh, during the tribulation period. But the religious system that will thrive during the tribulation period is one in which no one has any hope of hearing about Jesus or hearing about the gospel and being born uh, again. And these two vehicles, covetousness, materialism, uh, false religious teaching, uh, how Satan uses them even today to keep people from, uh, from Christ. And religious Babylon is, is probably uh, worse, worse of all. And it exists uh, in, massively in, in the world uh, uh, today. The world that we live in is very much a religious world. You take the populations of the world and they identify with some religion or some god or another. It is the overwhelming majority of, of the world population. And of the people who will die today and enter into a Christless eternity, far more will do that on a path of religion that will, then will ever do it on the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so both of them are dangerous, and the fall of uh, commercial and spiritual Babylon is going to be dealt with uh, in depth in chapters 17 and 18, so we'll wait until then to address it a little more completely. The third angel in verses 9 through 13 will warn the world against taking the mark of the beast. We talked about this a little bit uh, last week. And so they will be warned not to take the mark of the beast, and they will be warned of the consequences of 
taking that mark if they uh, do. So they're being warned against worshiping the Antichrist, worshiping his image, and, and receiving his mark on their forehand or forehead or on their uh, right hand. Now, of course, this warning not to take the mark um, it, it, it indicates that this angel will go forth to give that warning before the Antichrist requires of the world population to take that mark in order to buy or sell. But it's very important to understand that related to the mark of the beast in the tribulation period, no one gets duped. If you look and you say, man, if my kids end up in that great tribulation, they're just dumb enough to take the stupid thing. And, uh, but nobody's duped on this. They are warned, every single person, do not take this, and here's the consequences if you uh, do. Those that take the mark will do so against the warning. It is a clear declaration by their actions, I want nothing to do with God, with his kingdom, following him. I am all about Satan and what he is about, and I cast my lot and my loyalty and my future uh, to uh, him. And the consequences, we're told, in in, uh, 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 of ignoring God's warning and receiving the mark are detailed for us there in verses 10 and 11. Such a person, we're told in verse 10, will then drink of the fullness of God's wrath uh, and ig- indignation. It will be poured out upon them full strength. And so God's wrath is, is uh, symbolized here as a cup of wine that is the wine at, at full strength. And that's a common imagery of God's wrath uh, in the Bible, a cup uh, filled with wine. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, uh, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he about to drink? He was going to bear the sins of the entire world. And the wrath that that's, uh, uh, that that's our sin deserved from God upon himself on the cross. And so in the ancient world, if you wanted like anything, you know, if you wanted your wine to go a little bit further, you would dilute it down. And so here, though, God declares there'll be no diluting of God's wrath. This will come now uh, in, in its uh, fullness. And so they'll become objects of God's divine wrath. Uh, the consequences will be uh, eternal judgment, eternal torment. Verse uh, 10, such a person is going to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Speaking of Gehenna, uh, uh, an eternal lake of fire. Uh, the smoke of their torment, verse 11, will ascend forever and ever. And so the, the punishment will be painful. It will be eternal. Uh, there'll be, verse 11, uh, it'll be a place of no rest, that is, no relief, day uh, or night. And again, here are people, uh, nobody heading into this with uh, uh, blinded or deceived. Everybody that takes that mark is going to be eyes wide open and, and they, uh, they are going to take that mark and, uh, as a symbol of, of sharing Satan's hatred for God and then they're going to share the eternal judgment that's reserved for Satan and for the Antichrist, which is spoken of later in the Revelation. 
chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is important to realize that Gehenna was not, was not created for mankind. It was created for Satan, and it was created for uh, the angels that followed him in his rebellion uh, against God, those uh, uh, angelic beings that we call uh, demons today. And Jesus declared this, and again in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, uh, then he that is speaking of the Lord will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, uh, the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so you have heaven or you have eternity just made up of two compartments. One of them is heaven and then one of them is Gehenna. And to choose Satan over uh, God is to choose his eternal portion and, uh, and rejecting God's offer of salvation through his son and to end up in Gehenna. We'll probably talk about that a little bit more as we run into it further in the Revelation. Uh, this reality of this judgment that is going to be uh, meted out on those that take the mark uh, is intended, I'm sure, to uh, encourage the tribulation saints to meet their martyrdom uh, with courage and, uh, and, and to continue to uh, abide in the faith. Yes, you're going to be you're threatened with death for not taking the mark of the beast, but something, uh, if you take it, something worse than death is going to await you. Hold fast to your faith, and, and it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. As Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body and can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so you have these tribulation saints who will be looking at, at martyrdom, and this is an encouragement to them as well. Uh, steer clear uh, of uh, that mark of the beast. You may be tempted, and, and it's really a, a warning to the whole world at that time, you may be tempted to take it. You know you're in a pickle. You know the Antichrist, this is crazy, demonic, what in the world is happening, and you're... Uh, you're sick of it, you, you, and, uh, and, uh, and what is happening there? Your eyes have, have opened up to it, and there might be a temptation. Well, I'll take the mark just to buy myself a little more time to see how this pans out. And God says, don't take it. Certainly no Christian, and then no one else uh, as, as well. And so uh, John was instructed then to write, uh, in verse 13 of the blessing of those tribulation saints who will heed the warning of this angel and, uh, uh, and uh, not take the mark uh, of the beast. And he essentially declares that it will mean uh, dying a, a, a martyr's death at the hands of the Antichrist, uh, which is another good reason to be saved uh, prior to the rapture. Today will work just fine. Uh, for, for everybody, sooner the better. But 
all that that death is going to occur is to have them be removed from uh, the demonic horror of the world at that time, to be removed from the persecution of the devil uh, against them, to be removed from all uh, of that, that suffering, be taken up into the glory in heaven, uh, their Christian race will be over, and then the reward for their obedient lives uh, on earth as Christians is going to follow them into heaven. And the idea is that they're going to be duly rewarded as a result of that. Their race will be finished. Now, the, the, chapter 14 closes with these uh, chapter, uh, verses 14 through uh, 20. And um, not wanting grace at all, there's only justice remaining. And so the world is now going to reap what it has sown for seven years. And uh, I'm not going to delve into this with any, uh, any kind of lengthiness at all uh, for those of you who are getting anxious. Uh, but uh, verses 14 through 16, it describes uh, the judgment that is going to fall, fall upon the world, um, it, it, uh, God's judgment at the time of Jesus' second coming and at the time of the battle of Armageddon. And in verses 14 through 16, he describes it uh, in terms of a grain uh, harvest. Usually we think of a, a, a harvest as being the harvest of souls in a good way. But there's also a harvest that are, uh, the, there can be a harvest of evil or harvest of what is wrong. We remember Jesus talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares where uh, a certain uh, man went out and he sowed wheat into his field. Then an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. They wanted to go out and tear the tares out uh, from among the wheat. He said, don't, don't bother with it. We'll just harvest the whole thing at the end and we'll separate the tares from the wheat then. And so the tares being separated from the wheat are going to occur at Jesus' second coming and the judgment that immediately uh, follows that. But here you have the imagery of a grain harvest in a negative sense of, of the goats being separated from uh, the sheep. In verses 17 through 20, you have the description of Jesus' second coming, the battle of Armageddon described in even more graphic uh, uh, language that is used here uh, of the treading of grapes in the wine press in order to make uh, wine. Again, all of this is described in chapter 19. We'll look to unpack uh, that when we get there. Oh, there's so much that we can't get to today, but that's the parenthetical passage, and especially chapter 14. And so, so with this, we finish the parenthetical passage here. Uh, th this morning of, of chapters 10 through 14. But before we leave it, I just want us to take a moment and just uh, consider all that we've learned as a result of studying it. And without which we would be at a complete loss to understand uh, the book of, of Revelation and, uh, and, and as a, a preparation for what remains in the book. Back in chapter 10, the mighty angel with one foot on the sea and the other on the land uh, also in that chapter, the little book that John ate, God's word is both bitter and sweet. Uh, the tribulation temple, chapter 11. The two witnesses, uh, chapter 11. The seven prominent 
uh, personages of, of the tribulation period in verses uh, 12 through 14. Israel during the tribulation, her child G- uh, Jesus, Satan and his uh, resultant uh, murderous persecution uh, uh, and, uh, of the Jews and obsession with them. Michael the archangel, the remnant of Israel, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, the overcomers in chapter 12, the book of life in chapter 13, uh, the image of the Antichrist, chapter 13, the 144,000 today, the proclamation of these three angels related to the everlasting gospel, uh, the doom of Babylon, and then a warning against taking the mark of the beast. And then we tipped our toe ever so slightly into the water of of Armageddon. But that's a lot of territory. And it creates, creates without it, again, no hope of understanding uh, the book and certainly not going forward. And so all of it a snapshot of what uh, does life uh, uh, lay uh, uh, before us. So we have history in advance here. And... uh, I think that even today we see, readily see the development of all of these things that we see in, in the Revelation. And, um, and we see how uh, these things are not yet ha- happening, but the grooming is going on for the entire population for when all of this uh, ultimately uh, comes into the world. I don't think that any of us look at any of this and look at it and say, oh, that's inconceivable that anything like that could happen in the world. Uh, We see how even in our own lifetimes, how far the thinking of people have moved. The whole, what you have, the, the, the setup for the Antichrist, all you have to do for that to happen is move away from God. And then it's a free for all. And, and you see the consequences that we're facing in our world, all of them a direct result of a move away from what God teaches in, in His Word. And so we see all of it forming, all of it very, very well formed, in fact. So there's an old saying that to be forewarned, uh, forewarned is to be forearmed, and that's what we want to have happen here. And so if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, History in advance, this is going to happen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. That'll be another part of another sermon. We don't have time for it this morning. But to be all of this coming, then how to be forearmed for it. And there is only one way, and that is to put your trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and to be born again and become a part of God's family. It's that simple, but that's what needs to be done. And so don't wait to become a tribulation saint. You don't know that you'll live that long. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front Immediately after the service, they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. Have you been born again? Has there been a moment in time where you surrendered your life to God and put your faith in His Son? That is the only forearming 
that will withstand what's going on in the world today and will be able to withstand what is coming upon the world uh, later. Come forward today and make today the day of your salvation. You certainly won't regret it. Not in this life and certainly not in the life to come. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word here. And thank you for your grace that we just see all the way through it. And all of these people, and I, and I don't say these people condescendingly, Lord, but all of these people who will at this point have blown through so many stop signs that you have put in front of them to end up in this mess and you don't give up on trying to save them and to change their eternity and to begin a relationship with them. Thank you for your grace, Lord, in our own lives. Thank you for loving our souls the way that you do. Thank you for the greatest expression of that love, our Savior Jesus, this morning. And we thank you in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. Trinity.